So I have been asked to speak about St. Thomas as the master of philosophical wisdom, but I'm actually going to start with Iris Murdoch. Iris Murdoch is an atheist and an Anglo-American analytic philosopher who is having a bit of a renaissance right now or a moment in contemporary philosophy. Um, there are a few reasons for me to proceed with Murdoch. First, it's kind of hard for me to know what to say to this particular crowd about Thomas Aquinas that's not already widely known or understood. But second, and from my perspective, more importantly, I believe that Murdoch has a few key insights that she herself cannot fully explain and whose implications she does not fully grasp, which means that she's a very useful entry point to talking about the wisdom of St. Thomas to contemporary secular philosophers. And these are mostly the people or the population that I am in dialogue with. I think that very much the same can be said of Murdoch's longtime friend from her Somerville College days, Philippa Foote. Both Foote and Murdoch are moral realists, and both want to center the concept of virtue at the heart of their ethics. But both give very different and seemingly incompatible accounts of the virtuous life. I'd like to use St. Thomas as a kind of bridge figure between Murdoch and Foote. Study of Thomas shows us, I think, how we can unite the insights of both Murdoch and Foote into a single compelling account of the moral life, one that takes contemplation and philosophical wisdom seriously. So I want to start um, with just noting uh, that Iris Murdoch is a very strong moral realist, which I think is a good thing. She argues that the authority of morals is the authority of truth, and that truth is always some kind of adequation or some, um, some taking in of reality. Murdoch argues quite forcefully that good is an object of knowledge that it's part of reality, and that the good person is one who, in a sense, obeys reality. She is at least someone who learns to face it and live in it as much as she can, in spite of all the obstacles and difficulties. For her, the main work in the moral life is to have a clear vision of the good. This vision is something that she thinks we never fully attain, and so it is an endless task for us that requires constant imaginative and moral efforts. For Murdoch, real freedom, moral freedom, is attained as one's vision becomes more progressively clear, so that we grow in freedom as we attain a greater moral perception and become more attuned to the world and its people and the demands that both make upon us as moral agents. In the idea of perfection, Murdoch asks us to get away from a certain soul picture. That is to say, a certain self-image or self-conception under which we think, feel, and act. And she wants to do this because she thinks it's a false self-image. It's a kind of deep self-deception that is out of joint with the way that human beings really are. She seeks to offer us a rival soul picture, one more adequate to human reality. But what are the aspects of the soul picture that she wants to reject, that she finds all around her as she's studying and teaching philosophy at Oxford? The first is that good is to be solely identified with an autonomous will. 
whether this is kind of in a Kantian sense or not, doesn't really matter. It seems plain to Murdoch that what is good is part of the world and therefore an object of knowledge and that we are drawn to what we see and know is really and truly good. So she's a strong moral realist in this sense. She also uh, notices that many of her contemporaries argue that thought and belief are separate from will, choice, and action. But Murdoch thinks that love directs our attention and our thought, and thus that our beliefs and our vision can change in response to where we are directing our attention. And finally, she wants to reject uh, the soul picture according to which morality is about actions, reasons, and the will primarily. That the inner life and the perceptual and imaginative life of the person has no substantial role in our analysis of whether they are good or bad. Murdoch is attuned to what goes into what we recognize as a reason to act, feel, think, and respond in the first place. So I don't have space and I'm not going to go into all the beautiful detail uh, about the reasons why Murdoch finds this soul picture false. The main point for me is that it's not going to allow for what she calls, quote, the patient work of attention. So what is that? Well, Murdoch draws a careful distinction between looking and attention. Looking is value neutral and it's impersonal. Attention, by contrast, is guided by what we love. It's a moral capacity, and it's connected to Murdoch's belief that, and this is a quote, reality is that which is revealed to us through the patient eye of love. There's a kind of complicated moral psychology behind this view, one in which will and reason interpenetrate and shape one another, and also one in which our imagination plays uh, a very important role in what we can see. So Murdoch writes the following, and what I'm about to say is a quote. Will and reason are not entirely separate faculties in the moral agent. Will continuously influences belief for better and for worse, and is ideally able to influence it through a sustained attention to reality. This is what Simone Weil means when she says that will is obedience, not resolution. As moral agents, we have to try to see justly, to overcome prejudice, to avoid temptation, to control and curb imagination, to direct our reflection. Man is not a combination of an impersonal, rational thinker and a personal will. He is a unified being who sees and who desires in accordance with what he sees and who has some continual slight control over the direction and focus of his vision. I think that Murdoch is correct, that there is an important role for a kind of contemplative vision, which is not a neutral theoretical endeavor, but an act of loving and just attention. Right. So one, an, another quote from her is where she says, of course, virtue is good habits, but it's the background conditions of such habits and such actions in human beings that is a just mode of vision. It is a task to come to see the world as it is, right? And this is the main thing for Murdoch is coming to have this contemplative vision of the world that's grounded in reality that is going to help us be truly virtuous and just. 
Murdoch argues that good is a transcendent reality and that virtue is the attempt to pierce the veil of self-deception and selfishness that pervades human self-consciousness in order to join the world as it really is, which is kind of the goal. And she finally gets around, and this is perhaps her most platonic moment, to saying that we must that what we must in the end come to possess is a vision of the good. So this is another quote from Murdoch. The mind which has ascended to the vision of the good can subsequently see the concepts through which it has ascended, art, work, nature, people, ideas, institutions, situations, etc., in their true nature and in their proper relationships to each other. The good man knows whether and when art or politics is more important than family. The good man sees the way in which the virtues are related to each other. Right, so this is like the primacy of the good over other concepts. So Murdoch thinks that when we progress in the moral life, we come eventually to see a unity and order to the good. And she thinks we notice a hierarchy of goods. And we notice that the life of virtue cannot consist in isolated areas of expertise or excellence. She sees that we have no real grasp of justice unless we understand how it depends on courage and temperance no sense of good judgment without the other virtues. This is what she means when she says that we must come to have a moral vision, a vision of the good that has the potential to unify our lives. All of this, so far as it goes, is going to sound pretty fine to a Thomist. Certainly, St. Thomas is clear that while the will depends on the intellect for its object, the will also moves the intellect along with all the other powers of the soul. The will uses them, making their exercise voluntary in character. For Thomas, the will and the intellect are interdependent in a variety of complicated ways. Furthermore, Aquinas's account of practical wisdom follows that of Aristotle, so that we know that practical wisdom depends upon the cultivation of moral virtue. But moral virtue is rectified appetite and cannot be reduced to knowledge. Murdoch often, often sounds a bit too platonic, as if virtue could be reduced to knowledge, as if all we need is proper vision. This is an overcorrection, I think, of anti-realist tendencies she had encountered frequently at Oxford. At any rate, Thomas knows that this cannot be. Good is not primarily an object of knowledge, even though it can and must be known. Just as truth is not primarily an object of appetite, although it can and should be loved. Thomas is saved by these errors on account of his natural teleology, which allows him to make a real distinction between intellect and will as ordered to truth and good respectively. At the same time, Thomas knows that good practical judgment and rectified appetite are complexly intertwined. And if love directs our attention, this must be the case. For unless we have well-ordered loves, our attention will not be where it ought to be. Moral vision will only be sharpened by the cultivation of moral virtue and vice versa. All of this, I think, complicates the role of attention. Murdoch stresses 
that contemplative attention is necessary for proper moral vision. And I think this is true. And I think that Aquinas would agree with this. But he would also recognize that the quality or the character of our contemplative attention, where we are looking and how, depends upon habituation that has already taken place on a lower level. This suggests that there is something that stands behind attention, and that is a proper education. And a proper education will, in part, be a training of our capacity for attention. Simone Weil writes beautifully about this in her essays on study and the love of God. But it will be a training also of our lower passions, and it is difficult for me to see how attention can accomplish this on its own. If we do not shape our passions such that they are to such that they so that they are such as to listen to reason, we will not have the quality of attention that Murdoch demands rightfully of moral agents. We cannot cultivate a just and patient eye except, oh, sorry. We cannot cultivate a just and patient eye just by contemplating reality. Thomas recognizes that passions are not essentially rational and yet they are a crucial part of the moral life. So, so they must become habituated and that itself is not just going to come through contemplation. Um, it's going to involve repeated activities and a kind of curbing or restraining of our appetites. But Thomas's moral psychology and his account of the virtues also cannot be divorced from his metaphysics of nature. In Murdoch, one finds bold and striking claims that are out of joint with nearly all trends in modern moral philosophy. And this is a good thing, but one does not find many arguments. Even worse, Murdoch appears to reject the metaphysics of natures that might give any substance to her claims. Thomas recognizes the role that a metaphysical account of reality plays in our understanding of the moral life. On his account, reason itself is part of nature and cannot be understood outside of it. Goodness is part of the world because the world reflects divine intelligence and is ordered to a single common end. Murdoch helps herself to a, robust, to a robust moral realism without metaphysics, but we have strong reason, I think, to doubt whether this is possible. Regardless, Thomas will go much further. For Thomas, true wisdom cannot be divorced from metaphysics and understanding of being. After all, how can we have unity and order to the good without unity and order of being? How can there be a hierarchy of goods without a hierarchy of being that can be known. If ethics is grounded in reality, then our account of reality must make sense of the fact that there is an order and good inherent in it to be grasped in the first place. Murdoch rejects the reality of human nature. She rejects a metaphysics of nature that would ground some of her, her more lavish teleological claims and she rejects the idea that we are ordained to a common final end. The moral life is simply an endless task for Murdoch, but it has no point beyond itself. And thus there is little talk of fulfillment or happiness in Murdoch's ethical writings. And there is much talk of struggle and endless efforts of will and imagination. She seems to forget that contemplation is a form of rest 
and that our ultimate fulfillment is found in knowing the highest cause or the fullness of being. For Murdoch to be moral is to fight the ego in order to make contact with reality. It's to transcend the self so that we can cultivate virtue. Virtue for Murdoch is simply its own reward and there is nothing further that it serves. This distances Murdoch from Simone Weil, from whom she is so clearly inspired. Um, for Simone Weil, uh, the point is deeper communion with God. And of course, that would be the point for St. Thomas as well. By contrast to Murdoch, Philip of Foot never discusses contemplation, so far as I can tell, despite fancying herself an Aristotelian. While she's greatly concerned with what St. Thomas calls prudentia, she never seems to have given any thought to sapientia. On her account of virtue, habits of contemplation and attention play no role. Unlike Murdoch, Foote seems to recognize that without a robust account of natural goodness, it's difficult to make the case that virtue really is necessary, at least not as a moral belief with some claim to being true. It may simply be that people it may simply be something that good people want, where this goodness means nothing more than what they happen to desire or prefer. But without a teleological account of nature, Foot thinks that moral truth gets no purchase on our virtue talk and moral realism fails. Foot arrives at her account of moral realism by locating human life and action within a broader metaphysics of life and what she calls natural goodness and defect. Foote notices that the evaluation of human life and action has a certain kind of analogous structure to that of other living things. We have ends and needs in common as human beings, something we can all recognize as human flourishing, and virtues are those traits of character that are necessary to secure our flourishing. This is not so different, Foote argues, from wolves needing to learn how to hunt cooperatively in the pack or the fact that oaks need to develop strong roots in order to flourish. It's reasonable to be virtuous because the virtues are necessary for our natural goodness. And what is naturally good for us or our human flourishing is grounded in facts about our species being or form. Such that if we want to justify claims of human goodness and badness and virtue as truth claims, we will have to look to something like the natural life cycle of the human being suitably understood or suitably as sort of like Aristotelianly understood. So much of Foote's moral philosophy involves unpacking this wider context or grammar of goodness, uh, making the case for it, and then showing its connection to practical reason and the moral life. But also recognizes in a way that Murdoch doesn't that the practical life does have a goal um, beyond endless striving and it's happiness, right? And it's happiness that has to be defined in such a way that wickedness is incompatible with it, right? So it's a it's a happiness that depends on on a robust account of of morality. So the virtuous person, if the world does her a favor, according to Foote, will flourish. She will attain human goodness, and this will satisfy her in a deep way and make her happy. Of course, Foote acknowledges that she might not flourish, 
Virtue is necessary for happiness, but not sufficient. One also needs a bit of good fortune. And for some people, um, they'll be unable to be happy through no fault of their own. Nevertheless, one can make a safe bet that the life of virtue and its demands are worth pursuing. There is no other practically rational way to live for foot. What I want to suggest at this point is that Aquinas is someone whose account of wisdom can unite these two strands of contemporary moral philosophy into a single view that is more powerful than each on their own. Aquinas, of course, will agree with Foote that an account of nature is fundamental to ethics. Practical philosophy does not float free of metaphysics. It cannot if it wants to make claims to truth and be grounded in reality. But the practically wise man is not someone without habits of contemplation either, nor could he be. This becomes clear when we consider Thomas's views about happiness or human flourishing. And this is really where his substantive commitments to naturalism become most clear. We must never lose sight of the fact that for Thomas, happiness is not chosen. It is ordained by our common nature. The intellect seeks truth as its natural good. It could not be an intellect without this, as truth defines and measures the intellect as such. Similarly, the will seeks the universal good or happiness. It could not be a rational appetite without this constitutive principle, with which both defines and measures it. Furthermore, what is the universal good or happiness is not something that is totally up to individuals to define. Aquinas is not a constructivist or an anti-realist of any sort. We know that for St. Thomas, Practical reason is structured by the natural habit of cinderesis, and the will is inclined towards the ends identified in the of the natural law. The details of this do not matter for my purposes today. All we need to recognize is that there are some goods that we are naturally apt to know and love simply because we are human beings. This rational ordination to our natural good is necessary for understanding Aquinas's account of virtue and the role that contemplation or loving attention plays in it. We must first understand that we seek our own perfection and fulfillment by nature before we can appreciate the role that contemplative habits play in the perfection of that nature. In this context, contemplation will be our happiness and the contemplative life, therefore more excellent than the practical or the active life although also not completely divorced from it. Aquinas notes that we all want to be happy by nature, but we disagree about what will make us happy, what might ultimately satisfy or fulfill us given the kind of thing that we are. Famously, or perhaps infamously, depending on who you ask, Thomas settles on the thought that our perfection does not consist in any operation of the will, but an operation of the speculative intellect. But happiness is an active intellect. It consists in the vision of God and the possession of the intellect of the fullness of truth. The will delights in the presence of God, but ultimately the will is at rest once the intellect possesses its object, the greatest intelligible good. At the same time, 
the intellect can only come to possess God out of charity or love. It is the love of truth and love of God understood as the fullness of truth that will delight the will as resting in the person. This ultimately explains why wisdom in the sense of sapientia is the highest intellectual virtue. Wisdom considers the supreme cause, which is God, but sapientia must be animated by divine charity if it is to lead us to perfect happiness, and divine charity is located in the will. Our speculative contemplation is not a neutral looking. Someone is a contemplative or has contemplative habits or pursues a contemplative life insofar as they intent are intent on contemplating the truth. But as Thomas points out, intention is a matter of the will because intention is of the end, which is an object of appetite. The contemplative life centers around the intellect but is motivated by love. Therefore, the contemplative life must be properly motivated and for Aquinas, that proper motivation must be divine charity, because it is through loving God that we are, quote, aflame to gaze on his beauty. And since everyone delights when he obtains what he loves, it follows that the contemplative life terminates in delight, which is seated in the effective power, the result being that love of God intensifies the more we contemplate him. So again, here you see this kind of always complex interplay um, between intellect and will, between knowledge, knowing and loving. And this, I think, brings us back around to Murdoch, to the necessity of contemplation and truth, to the cultivation of virtue and the ultimate need for charity. Murdoch is correct that contemplation is an important part of the good life and that helps us to grow in virtue. And it's an oversight of foot that she does not see this. But as Murdoch refuses to traffic in any kind of metaphysical speculation or make any kind of metaphysical commitments, she is unable to truly defend or to understand the full meaning of the role of contemplation in the moral life. Foote, on the other hand, sees the important role of the metaphysics of nature for moral realism, but seems to have no space for contemplation. In the figure of Aquinas, however, we see how human nature, understood in the broader context of the metaphysics of nature, is necessary to understand the role and value of contemplation in the virtuous life. For Aquinas, contemplation is the highest it is what perfects and completes us when it is completed and perfected through charity when we possess God in the beatific vision. The contemplative acts and habits that we acquire in this life are a foretaste or a preparation for that ultimate beatitude and rest. But sapientia or philosophical wisdom is important to the contemplative life because the study of divine effects, if undertaken in the proper way and in the proper spirit, will direct the mind and the heart to what is unperishable and everlasting. For the ultimate perfection of the human intellect is in divine truth, and the other truths perfect the intellect in relation to divine truth. For St. Thomas, the reason that we must live in reality and conform ourselves to reality is not because virtue is an endless task, noble simply in and of itself, but because our grasp of truth is leading us to our perfection. 
which it is reasonable for us to hope that we might attain with the help of God's grace, which heals, perfects, and elevates our nature, including our intellect. As rational creatures, we have a natural desire to know, and we take a natural delight in the possession of truth. But this is perfected by wisdom. And this is a quote, for more delightful still does this become to one who has the habit of wisdom, the result of which is that he contemplates without difficulty, but is also delightful on the part of its objects insofar as one contemplates that which one loves. Thus, the most delight that one can have in the contemplative life is when one's wisdom is animated by divine charity. Divine truth is not only something we crave to possess with our intellect, but it is also that in which the love of the will finds its ultimate delight and rest. And ultimately, our happiness and perfection is a form of rest, incompatible with strife, suffering, or endless efforts. Thus, for St. Thomas, true wisdom is knowing that contemplation is not valuable just insofar as it serves the active life, though it does serve it. Ultimately, the active life is in service of contemplation, not the other way around. We may say in the end that Thomas is a master of philosophical wisdom because he understands the need for the active and the contemplative life to be mutually enriching without losing sight of the fact that by our very nature, we will only find our ultimate joy in the truth and resting in the presence of the greatest good, which is truth and self. 